This is The Professor's Corner, a McGuire Woods series exploring business and legal issues prevalent in today's private equity industry. Tune in with McGuire Woods partner, Jeff Cockrell, as he and specialists share real-world insight to help enhance your knowledge. Thank you, everyone, for our initial installment of The Professor's Corner. I'm joined by my partner, David Pivnik, in our litigation group. I work with David on a lot of litigation-related matters for private equity funds that have invested in healthcare companies. A lot of uh, issues come up, and uh, David helps us navigate them. There's a recent case that has come up that we're going to be talking about today that kind of tests the boundaries of some of the insulation that private equity funds feel and being insulated from liabilities of their healthcare platform companies. And we're going to kick around some of the ideas and some best practices related to that. So, David, I'll uh, turn it over to you to kind of uh, set the table for this discussion. Absolutely. Thank you very much uh, for having me, Jeff. Happy to join and to discuss this topic. In short, what, what took place is there was a whistleblower case that had been brought and was investigated both by the Department of Justice at the federal level as well as by the Massachusetts State AG's office, and ultimately the state decided to intervene and looked at the case not just from the lens of pursuing claims for purportedly improper and fraudulent billing against uh, the underlying healthcare provider, but also in connection with the private equity fund that had invested in the entity and had uh, board seats and involvement uh, from a management level in light of that board participation of the entity. And what ultimately has recently developed is the private equity fund also settled claims against it in connection with the alleged fraud. So not that they necessarily did anything wrong or admitted wrongdoing, but the fact of the settlement and the nature of it arising out of a private equity fund's investment in the healthcare space is certainly noteworthy and I think leads to some questions and room for discussion as to why that came to be and how people can navigate that in the future. Yeah, I mean, normally a private equity fund the background thinking is that while their equity investment is at risk, that's usually the boundaries of the risk that they face. And that if uh, there are problems at the portfolio company, those kind of tank their equity investment, but those are about it. And this has been a little jarring and a little different from what private equity funds usually think. So Dave, maybe get into some of the nuances that gave rise to the state uh, looking beyond the platform company and looking at the private equity fund as a source of recovery. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a couple of things about it. I mean, first of all, I will say, I don't think this was perceived from the government standpoint that I, I can't speak to the government on this. And obviously I am positionally always opposed to the government on these cases because I'm always representing clients on the defense side. But I think their perspective here was that it was more than just an ownership. I don't think the government viewed this as an investigation into a private equity owner for ownership's sake, and it was more focused on the board control, board involvement, and the issues that were at play. The allegations and the alleged misconduct has been, at least as I, you know, as is alleged, was brought to the board's attention. The board of directors had opportunities to intervene and to try and tamp down the improper conduct and to try and rein things in and ensure that compliance governed. But rather than doing that, the allegation was that the board allowed the conduct to continue and that it in turn allowed the company and therefore the private equity investor to benefit from that wrongdoing. And so the concern 
that was alleged here was not as much you're potentially liable here by virtue of your ownership, but potentially liable by virtue of participating on the board, controlling the board, and not taking appropriate steps to address misconduct when it was directly brought to your attention. Yeah, so most buyout funds are going to have, if not outright board control, substantial board presence, but usually outright board control. So most buyout funds that meet kind of that first kind of part of that analysis. And I counsel funds and folks that are on the board. One of the things that gives them anxiety is the difference between doing something outright bad and making close calls in gray areas and having that be second-guessed later. How would you describe, and we only get too far into the specifics of, of this case, but how would you describe how you think the government would view that distinction as it relates to a private equity member's kind of participation on the board or the, the fund's kind of control of the board? I think it is a fair distinction that you're drawing. I don't think an investor is fully insulated by being on the board, you know, and saying we don't have full control. But I think there is a significant difference, and I think the government very much perceives a significant difference between being on the board and making rational business judgments, particularly where those business judgments are informed and educated by going to counsel on sticky issues and trying to work through things in a meaningful way, I think that is perceived differently than instances where a board might be informed directly, this conduct is problematic, this billing is fraudulent. We've got, you know, we just conducted a billing and coding audit and 100% of the claims came back with issues and nothing is done or what's done is simply refunding those claims and not looking beyond that at extrapolation or fixing the bigger problem. So I think there is a material difference between being on the board and making sometimes difficult decisions where, as you you put it, there are shades of gray that need to be navigated. But doing that with a compliance mindset, doing that with appropriate advice, being sought and obtained you know, where necessary, and not just focusing on making a buck or looking past those difficult issues. I think that's very different, those circumstances, versus having an understanding or being directly told this conduct is riskier, this conduct is problematic, than either turning a blind eye to it or worse, continuing down the road of that conduct because there's money to be obtained by doing so. This kind of brings us to one of the practice pointers surrounding this. Having been through lots of discussions of the type that you're referring to, it's always, and then if something arises in the future, kind of looking back at what happened, it's always a little jarring to me in an environment where you know there was all of this communication around a subject, but three months, six months, a year removed when you look back at it, as if the only thing that happened were a handful of emails around a topic. And so as you're thinking about with private equity funds sitting on a board, making business determinations in areas where they have shades of gray, how would you advise them to think about making a record that if something is looked at later, the fullness of your deliberation comes out? I'm not suggesting that there's a full legal memo from uh, McGuire Woods on, on every topic that they're thinking about, but how do you make a better record of the deliberation that occurred? Sure. I, I think there's two things, and, and I, I'm going to answer that directly. But the first thing is I, I think it's important for boards to be keeping in mind their role and the compliance function. 
and how those things intersect as a more general matter. So one thing is, you know, engaging in some board-level best practices can be helpful. Having the board receive and participate in compliance training, doing that on an annual basis, refreshing it, working through how the organization's compliance function works, and making sure that the board is aware of that. Setting up a compliance committee, depending on the size of the organization, is often very appropriate. And making sure that the board is getting direct reporting from the compliance officer and that it's clear that compliance has a direct line pipeline to the board. Taking those steps and making sure that some of that compliance function is both being addressed at the board level and actively monitored and discussed, but also is separated from some of the business concerns, I think is all helpful both in preventing issues from arising, but also, frankly, helping to position with a positive look, uh, you know, positive spotlight, the board's role if things arise later. And then in terms of of your specifics, so now we've had the thorny issue arise. I, I think a lot of it will depend on the nature of what the issue is and what the resolution is. If, if we know something is in the gray and we're not going to be able to get fully comfortable with it, I, I think you, know, you need to take steps to, A, document the processes that we went through. And that, again, I don't think that means a full-blown legal memo, but if we had analysis and legal advice was obtained, I think reflecting that does make sense. If it's one that, that is not subject to legal advice, but ultimately there's a cut that's made to either discontinue conduct, well, that should be documented that it was discontinued and if refunds were issued. But if you're proceeding, presumably there is a rationale. And I think that should be reflected in the minutes as to what the nuances were that ultimately made the company comfortable. If, if there's a concern, for example, about the structure of a payment relationship and ultimately, the comfort level is there because it's not tied to referrals. There's not a, an intent to generate referrals. It applies to non-referral sources, and the compensation is fair market value. Documenting all of those things, even if there may be other aspects of the relationship that are authority, can be helpful because one of the things that, that I see you know, afterwards is, is the DOJ may often say, well, it's easy for you to raise those arguments after the fact to try and justify this when you're already in the mud, but helping to outline that in advance can be very helpful in documenting what the actual thinking was at the time. And I think that all needs to be balanced with, I think people have a general reticence to put things in writing and to document too heavily. And obviously counsel can advise on what's necessary and appropriate there. But I think, you know, if if there are going to be difficult decisions, there ought to be a rationale both behind the decision that justifies why it was made. But if if there is, there ought to be a willingness to uh, expand upon that as well, so that if you need to justify it later, people understand what the thinking was. Yeah, and that that is, as you mentioned, sometimes counterintuitive to folks in their board capacities or the folks running the meetings concerned that if I'm more specific, this will look, in hindsight, it'll look like we did this on purpose and that it was immediately in front of us we made the wrong call. Whereas I think your point is the effect that you're really trying to convey from someone looking after the fact is that you were careful and thought about these things and did your best to honor both your business commitments and your compliance commitments and that you'll get more grace in that process if it's clear that you were careful and attentive to these things than if you were cavalier. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, one of the parallels that you could draw is frankly, I mean, there is and advice of counsel defense in terms of the intentionality. So, you know, you fight back on intent 
of a fraud case or a kickback case, for example, if you've got advice of counsel, the general thinking of that is if you went to get a legal opinion and your legal opinion, even if it steered you wrong, existed, that demonstrates you weren't intending to violate the law. You went and got a legal opinion, you tried to do it right. Conversely, if, if the legal opinion says, if you ask some a client asks the two of us for an opinion, our opinion is we think this is likely a high risk of fraud or a high risk of violating the anti-kickback statute and someone does it, needless to say, they've taken that risk and they wouldn't engage in, in using the advice of counsel defense. And I kind of think that same logic, even though you don't have the formal advice of counsel defense, applies on the board level. If, if you're not comfortable putting in writing how you landed as a decision and how factors were ultimately weighed, to me, the bigger sign there is not don't put this in writing at the board level. It's don't make that decision and go in a different pathway. And that's not to say that every decision is perfect. I mean, we, we all have to live in the real world and, and navigate tricky issues. But again, if it's something that ultimately everyone is very squirrely documenting, to me, that's probably a very bright red flag indicating that this course of conduct has some risk. Maybe another kind of practice pointer to spend a little time on is kind of the nature and uh, tone and flavor of internal communications. Um, uh, most communications on a topic are not uh, with outside counsel or inside counsel uh, seeking advice, but are kind of internal business people having conversations on things. And again, while there might be a hundred conversations on it, there might be 10 that are in email. Um, and one of the things that uh, we often see is the, the tone of those uh, can get lost over time and that uh, whether it's adding a little levity with somebody that you have a personal relationship in, in, the, in the office that is not indicating a loose concern for the legality, um, sometimes the tone in those communications when looked at separately and in isolation can convey a different vibe that's not even the vibe that the person sending it intended, but it, it just smells different. Um, what, what advice would you give as people are thinking about thorny issues internally at a company? How should they think about the, the nature and mode of communication? Yeah, I think the first thing is it's worth remembering that ultimately, you know, emails are forever. Documents, you know, any, anything you put in writing and anything online, text messages, et cetera, those aren't going anywhere. And I think people should proceed with that in mind and then take that a step back and also realize, well, shoot, if I'm concerned, because this email might be discovered later. To me, the takeaway is not, well, then just pick up the phone and have the discussion face-to-face, because -face, you could still be asked to testify about that later. The discussion should be, what is it about this that gives me a concern, and how can we recalibrate the decision here, or how can we take a different approach that doesn't create that same concern? And I think often people get lost a little bit in the weeds of, well, we won't put this in writing, and that makes it okay. And to me, I think sometimes that this is, I'm not saying that's imprudent either, because as again, things are ready to live forever, but I think sometimes that this is the mark of taking the step back and thinking about why is it that this gives me some reservations to begin with, and how can we potentially adjust the approach in a way that helps to solve that concern rather than just trying to document. And the other thing I would think about is if you get a culture of compliance sort of instilled with the organization, and I do think this is where having a compliance committee or a compliance officer who's got the ability to speak candidly to the board, who's going to be able to give you know, legitimate advice, having counsel that is trusted and a legitimate dialogue 
can be helpful because you need to be able to run these issues to ground. It can't be a matter of we're not going to talk about X, Y, and Z because we don't want to say something foolish. But you also need to keep in mind that every bit, you know, every instinct and every bit of the rationale for a decision could come into play later on as you're justifying that decision, which means I think there is a premium on thinking about not just how we're doing things from a business and operational standpoint to be profitable, but how those things tie into the bigger picture operations and how they tie in to the compliance plan. And and the the legal parallel would be, you know, under the anti-kickback statute, courts generally recognize sort of what's called the quote-unquote one-purpose rule, which is to say if any one purpose of the relationship is to induce referrals and is improper, even if there are 100 other great justifications for it that are completely proper, you're still violating the AKS. And I think that kind of guidepost is instructive generally in making business decisions. If, if one of those reasons is going to be tainted, if we know underlying this is one problem, then there's a risk that that problem and this issue is going to see the light of day and we're going to have to account for it. So trying to structure things, again, not impractically, but thinking about things with that compliance viewpoint in mind and involving counsel or the compliance team where we get to thorny issues so that things are structured appropriately and we make sure there is a comfortable landing spot, I think is paramount. And then messaging it and communicating it afterwards should hopefully flow from that dialogue. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And we'll see you on the next segment of The Professor's Corner. Thank you for joining us on this installment of The Professor's Corner. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Jeff Cockrell at gcockrell at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state, and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.